0: good morning it is a great privilege to be with you um, I was blessed to know Tom well through the work of Presbytery we served on the leadership development committee together and and uh, I had found in Tom a, a kindred spirit uh, in many ways he and I had so much in common uh, same age same calling I also pastor a church that is a church plant and we're about a year and a half behind you guys. We'll be coming up on our ninth anniversary later this year. So it's a privilege to be with you and to be able to minister God's word to you. Before I get to the scripture reading, if I could have the attention of the children for just a moment so that I can set this up for you and explain to you what's what's happening in this passage. So I love a good rescue story. Um, I've always loved stories and I've always loved rescue stories. And so one of my favorite stories is... Lord of the Rings, and when you come to the end of the story of the Lord of the Rings after uh, the Ring of Power has been destroyed and the fires of Mount Doom, you have Frodo and Sam on the slopes of Mount Doom, and it seems no way possible that they're going to be able to get home until the eagles come to the rescue. Or Star Wars, when Luke Skywalker is hanging by one hand up in Cloud City, having been defeated by Darth Vader, and it seems like it's all over until the Millennium Falcon comes in to the rescue. Well, probably my favorite story of all, besides the Bible, is Pilgrim's Progress. And what's interesting is there's two points of great rescue in that story. One is, of course, the initial problem that Christian needs to be rescued from is his great burden that he's carrying and that weighs him down and it is he is delivered when he comes to the foot of the cross. But then also, later he's trapped in the castle of giant despair, and he's locked, and he's despairing of life itself, but he remembers the key of promise. All rescue stories ultimately point us to the rescue story. When Jesus, the great rescuer, came from heaven to earth, to deliver us from the greatest enemies we face, which are sin and death. So we're going to be reading Psalm 118, and Psalm 118 is a celebration for deliverance, for rescue. And you'll hear that language of of being trapped and being in despair, and then the Lord delivering. But ultimately, Psalm 118 is pointing us to Jesus and to the deliverance that he gave us on the cross. So let's turn now to Psalm 118 and hear the word of God. O oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, you are good, better than we know perfect in all of your ways, and wonderful in how you regard us, how you treat us. Your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness, your compassion for us endures forever. Speak to us this morning through your word. Write it on our hearts and help us to see Jesus our Savior more clearly for the time we spend together with you in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm gonna give you just a quick 30 second course on how to read the Psalms and other Hebrew poetry uh, for, for maximum benefit. So, most Hebrew poetry, the main point is in the middle. And so, what you need to do when you read it, you need to pay attention to how it opens and how it closes, because that's usually the application. What should we do with this main point? And then you go right to the middle, and you find the main point that we're supposed to apply. So I'm just going to cut right to the chase and show that to you at the beginning here, and then we'll walk our way through this psalm. Psalm 118 is pretty easy because the opening and the closing are the same. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. What's the main point? We'll go to verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. When we're in trouble, when we're facing hardship, distress of any kind, but especially the ultimate hardship and distress that's brought about by our sin and by death and by judgment, the Lord is... Our strength and our song, and in Christ Jesus, he has become our salvation. And our response to that should be to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 has been a favorite psalm of many people for many, many years. It was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. The great German reformer, Martin Luther, loved the psalms. He wrote, hymns based on the psalms, the most famous, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on Psalm 46. But his favorite psalm was Psalm 118. He said of Psalm 118, this is my psalm, my chosen psalm. I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation and my life, but this psalm is nearest my heart. And I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger from which nor emperor, nor kings, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. And Martin Luther faced danger and distress greater than any of us here in this room ever have or ever will. I'm pretty sure. Because I'm pretty sure none of us will ever be called upon to stand before the most powerful person on the face of the earth, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and be called upon to recant our Christian testimony and our faith in the gospel under penalty of death. But that's what Luther faced. And where did he get his hope? From Psalm 118. Knowing that the Lord is on his side, what can man do To me, the Lord is my strength and my psalm. But Martin Luther wasn't alone in his love for Psalm 118. It's also very evidently one of the favorite psalms of almost all of the New Testament writers. It's pretty amazing how often Psalm 118 is quoted in the New Testament. It is directly quoted, especially verses 22 and 23 and verses 25 and 26 are quoted in Matthew 21, in Mark 11 and 12, in Luke 13 and 20, in John 12, in Acts 4, in Hebrews 13, in 1 Peter 2. And then in addition to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Hebrews, and 1 Peter, Paul alludes to verse 22 in Ephesians 2.20 when he calls Jesus the chief cornerstone of the living temple of the church. So, so here I have a little challenge for you. Kids, you can take me up on this challenge, but you adults can do this too. All right? So I said Psalm 118 was a favorite of almost all of the New Testament writers, probably of all of them, but it's quoted by almost all of the New Testament writers. And so I told you it's quoted by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, and the author of Hebrews, whoever that is. So my challenge for you after the worship service, come up to me and tell me which New Testament authors don't quote Psalm 118. It's a short list. And they have something in common with each other. So that's your little challenge. The only other psalm that ranks up with Psalm 118 as being a favorite among the New Testament authors is Psalm 110. Especially the opening verse of Psalm 110, which is written by David, where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But then also later in verse four of Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110, verse 1 is actually the most referenced verse from the Old Testament in the whole New Testament. And then verse 4 gets a whole expositional treatment in Hebrews 7. So why why are these two psalms so important? And why am I taking time to point this out to you? Well, it's not just for trivia knowledge. These two psalms, 110 and 118, were really, really important to the early church because... When Jesus came to the rescue, he wasn't who people thought he was going to be, and he didn't come and do what people thought he was going to come and do. And so these two psalms helped the early church to understand that actually this was God's plan all along. So Jesus wasn't who people thought he was going to be. They thought he was going to be the son of David, a great king. The restoration of the Davidic monarchy a king who would reign in Jerusalem as the mighty warrior king, just like David. But Jesus himself quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, in saying, whose son is the Christ? And they said, David. And he said, well, if he's David's son, then how come David calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So if he's David's son, how can he be his Lord? And they didn't know how to answer that question because Jesus was more than the son of David. But then Psalm 118 tells us how he comes to the rescue, and it's through a very unexpected way. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus accomplished our salvation, our rescue, by being rejected, despised, cast off, thrown out. And then in his resurrection and ascension became the chief cornerstone of the church, the living temple of the Lord. We're going to take a look at this psalm together in four parts. First, that deliverance is needed. Second, that the deliverer, is trusted for the deliverance. Third is that deliverance is given and celebrated. And fourth, that the deliverer deliverer is thanked and praised. When we get to the third part of the deliverance given and celebrated, we're going to take a look at seven specific ways that Psalm 118 point us directly to Jesus and his saving work. So you want to save some note space for that because we're going to go through and look at seven lines from Psalm 118 that specifically connect to Jesus and his ministry. But the first thing we see after the opening call to give thanks to the Lord, the first thing we see is that there is a need for deliverance. Verse five, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. And then verses 10 to 13, this great image. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. Can you imagine that? Being in a swarm of bees. I've never had that happen to me, but I've had nightmares about it. I don't know if you've had that nightmare, but I've had nightmares where so I've been like in the woods and there's this great swarm of bees around me and I can't get away and they keep stinging me and ah, uh, I'm glad I've never had that experience. Cuz when I was a boy, I was not nice to bees. And so if bees really talk to each other and they have a memory, then I might be on their most wanted list. Because I was not a good kid and I was not nice to bees. I went out like a fire among thorns. One of the things we have in our backyard is a fire pit. And one of my favorite things is to take the old uh, thorny vines and I put them on the brush pile. And when they're dry, you put them on the fire because they make great kindling. They just (laughs) And that's how he felt. He felt so surrounded, the psalmist, that it was like a fire among thorns. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And then he says, I was pushed so hard that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. Now, we don't know who wrote Psalm 118. We don't know when it was originally written. But as I think about the circumstances that might have prompted the writing of Psalm 118, one of the things that came to mind was when Jerusalem, was surrounded, or about to be surrounded, by the armies of the Assyrian Empire in the days of King Hezekiah. So Hezekiah was the king, Isaiah was the prophet. The Assyrians were the big bad guys in the world, they were taking over everywhere. They had already conquered northern Israel, they had already wiped out the Philistines, they had already taken out most of the walled cities throughout the land of Judah, and they were closing in on Jerusalem. And you have to understand that the Assyrian army at this point would have been a multinational force made up of basically all the known nations of the world under the banner of the Assyrian Empire. And so all the nations of the world were surrounding Jerusalem and marching on the capital. And so outnumbered was Jerusalem that the Rabshakeh, who was kind of like the chief ambassador for the Assyrian Empire, he taunted the people of Jerusalem. He taunted King Hezekiah. He said... I'll make you a deal. I will give you 2,000 horses if you have 2,000 men in that city who are qualified to ride them. That's when you know you're outnumbered. And yet, in one night, one angel of the Lord came down and wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And in the morning the Assyrian army had to tuck tail and go home. The Lord is on our side. But the second that comes to mind is Jesus on the cross, which is ultimately, I believe, what this is pointing us to. You see, Jesus was crucified by a very unholy alliance between the leaders of God's people and the Roman occupiers. And so there was a mix of the people of God, the Jewish people, and Roman soldiers and onlookers who were, we know the Gospels tell us, they were mocking him, they were jeering at him, they were taunting him, and the soldiers were there. And we know that at one point, Jesus was so pressed down by the weight of the cross that he stumbled and fell. In this life, We face difficult times. If you're not in a difficult time right now, then there's two things I know about you. You've been through difficult times, and you will go through difficult times. But I know this church well enough to know that you guys are in a difficult time right now. That is the reality of life in a fallen world. We have deadly enemies. One inside of us, our own flesh, that kicks against God and his rule, that doubts God's goodness, that causes us to question our faith. Satan never stops attacking us and mocking God and causing us to doubt. And the world, of course, is certainly not friendly to the Christian faith and comes after us. so we can often find ourselves in tight spots. But we must move on to the second point here. Not only is deliverance needed, but we have a deliverer who must be trusted. Look at verses 6 through 9. Where do we find our confidence in times of deep distress? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. As my helper, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Did you notice when I read Psalm 118, and as we're going back through it, that there's a lot of repetition in Psalm 118? A lot of lines that are repeated, a lot of phrases that are repeated? Ever wonder about that? The Bible does that a lot. You know why? Because we need it. We need to remember the things that we are so prone to forget. And as my middle school German teacher taught me, Repetition is the mother of learning. God says, you need to remember these things, so I'm going to tell them to you over and over again. And one of the most frequently repeated things, in the Psalms especially, is that the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Because we forget that, like, five and a half seconds after we hear it. And so we need to hear again, the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And here we have the repetition of the two truths that we need when we are in distress. The Lord is on my side. The Lord is on my side. And it is better to trust in the Lord. It is better to take refuge in the Lord. It is better to take refuge in the Lord. Romans 8 tells us that the Lord is on our side. Romans 8, 31 and 32, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we were in our deepest distress, And whether we realize it or not, our deepest distress is caused by our sin and the death that comes as a consequence of sin and then the eternal judgment of God that comes after death. And when we were in that deepest distress and it required required the greatest payment that could ever be made, God giving his one and only son, God did not spare his only son but freely gave him up for us all. So when we're in smaller points of distress, and it would take something much smaller for God to bring us through, we need to trust him that he hasn't changed and he hasn't forgotten and he is on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? In Hebrews 13, where Psalm 118 is quoted, it's in the context of needing to resist temptation. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, and here's the quote from Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the Lord is on our side and it is better to take refuge in the Lord. There's so many things that are offering us refuge in this world. So many things that are promising You know, If you live in the right neighborhood, if you put your kids in the right schools, if you have enough money in your retirement savings, if you've planned out everything carefully, then you'll be okay. It's better to trust in the Lord. It's better to take refuge in the Lord. Now, of course, we're to be good stewards with the things that God's given to us, but we shouldn't trust in those things. There's nothing in this world that's ultimately lasting forever. Stock markets crash. Crime waves happen. Economies collapse. Jesus knew that he had no human means of security as he faced the cross. His disciples began to fight for him. Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and Jesus told him, put his sword away. And then Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. His disciples ran from him. His own nation's leaders conspired against him. Pontius Pilate washed his hands of him, but Jesus trusted in his Father alone. And with his dying breath, he said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And God delivered him from death. He knew it was better to trust in the Lord. Well, deliverance is given and deliverance should be celebrated. So let's go ahead and look through the middle part of this psalm. Just be with me in verses 10 to 27, as we're going to go through and find seven things in these verses in the middle of the psalm that connect with Jesus. First, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You know, this is actually a quote from an earlier song. It's actually a quote from the first hymn of the people of God. Anybody know? In the Bible, there's the first time that a song is written for God's people to sing together. It comes after the definitive deliverance of the Old Testament, that which defined Israel as the people of God, the crossing of the Red Sea. When they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and then the waters of the Red Sea drowned Pharaoh's army, they got on the other side and they sang the song of Moses. And they sang the song of Moses in Exodus 15. It's the first song of the people of God, gathered together as the people of God. And in that song, they sang, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, for the Old Testament people of God, they could sing this whenever they saw God rescue them from some great disaster. But we know, in the light of the cross, the ultimate fulfillment of this line. He has become my salvation. Ultimately means that Jesus himself, whose name is, in Hebrew, salvation. Yeshua, Jesus' Hebrew name, is the same as the Hebrew word for salvation. That's his name. His name is Salvation. And on the cross, God in the flesh literally became our salvation because he became sin for us. And in our place, he was condemned. We were set free from the burden of sin forever. He has become our salvation. Secondly, we see the glad songs in the tents of the righteous. What are they singing? The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Again with the repetition. Now for them, in the Old Testament, singing it, it could just mean God stretched out the arm of his power and he provided great deliverance. Parting of the Red Sea, vanquishing of the Assyrian army, deliverance from oppression. But for us, we know who is the right hand of God? Who is God's Right hand. Kids, who is God's right hand? Who? Jesus. I can't hear you. Who is he? Jesus. Jesus. Yes. You're allowed to speak out loud if I ask a question. It's okay. Jesus is the right hand of God. He sits at God's right hand. He is the extension of God's saving power into the world. He is God made flesh. He is how God reaches into the world to provide salvation. And he has done valiantly in conquering sin and death. And he is exalted. That second line in there in the ESV reads, The right hand of the Lord exalts. But maybe a better translation might be, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. Other translations render it that way. It seems to be maybe a better rendering. But both things are true. Jesus is exalted. And as we are in Christ, he exalts us as well to the right hand of God where we find favor with the Most High God. Third, open to me the gates of righteousness, this is verse 19, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Now in the context of an Old Testament victory celebration. We can imagine a scene of a national procession that's going up the hill into Jerusalem through the gates, and and perhaps the original meaning, as it was given within that context, would have been, open up the gates so that we can come into the city, so that we can come into the temple, and we can worship the Lord. But we as believers in Jesus, who live on this side of the cross, can never read of the gate of the Lord without thinking of Jesus, who said in John 10, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He is the gates of righteousness because he is our only righteousness and he's our only access to God and we go in through him and we can celebrate before God as those who have been delivered, those who have been forgiven, those who have fellowship with God Forevermore, he is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous, those made righteous by Christ, enter through him. Fourth, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This one is very clearly and repeatedly quoted in the New Testament as being directly about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new and living temple of God. He was rejected by the builders, by the leaders of God's people, but God, by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand, has made him the cornerstone of the new and living temple. And if you are in Jesus, you belong in that temple. You are part of what God is doing. So let me stop here and ask you, Are you? We just talked about the need to enter in through the gate of the Lord, the gates of righteousness. Now we see the one who is the cornerstone, who is my salvation. Is he your salvation? Is he your cornerstone? You can answer, yeah. Is he your cornerstone? All right. That means you're building your life on him. That means you're aligning your life to him. That means you're trusting in him. You're abiding in him. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't be part of the temple of God unless you're lined up to the cornerstone, trusting in him. You can't enter into the presence of God unless you come in through the gate of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't share in the table of God and enjoy the feast that anticipates that final day when we will feast with him in the glorious kingdom of God unless you are trusting in him. So I pray that you will trust in him. And if you are trusting in him, then we can come to the next thing. Number five, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What day are we talking about? It's the day when the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. It's the day of resurrection. It's the day of victory. It's the day of triumph. We call it the Lord's Day. It's why we gather for worship in the morning on the first day of the week, because this is the day when Jesus rose again from the dead. And while it is right and appropriate to wake up every day and say, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it, it is most especially appropriate on this day, on the Lord's Day, because we remember that God has exalted the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can be a part of that celebration every Lord's day. Number six, save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, in Hebrew, is Hosanna. What did they sing on Palm Sunday as Jesus was coming in? To Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were actually singing this verse from Psalm 118 on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in that great triumphal procession. Jesus is the one who comes to save us now. Now that crowd that was shouting on that Palm Sunday, they were thinking in very limited, very human, and very inadequate terms. They were thinking, yes, here comes the king. He's going to overthrow these Romans. He's the great miracle worker. We've had wonderful things about him. He's going to go up there. He's going to strike all these Romans, and they're going to flee from Jerusalem, or we're going to have our independence again. And the palms that they laid down were signs of national independence, but they missed the point, because you realize if the Romans had been kicked out of Jerusalem, and if Israel had its national independence again, that their biggest problem would have remained unsolved because they would still be sinful and they would still die and they would still face God as their judge and they would still be condemned forever. So often what we want from God is so short-sighted and so inadequate for what we really need. Wise parents, kids, want to hear this one. Wise parents will know that they often have to say no to what their kids want so that they can give their kids what they need, what is more important, what is more lasting. And God, our Heavenly Father, has given us a deliverance that is not temporary like a political deliverance, but once and for all, forever. He saved us from sin and death forever and ever. And the last one, the seventh one, talks about, in verse 27, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. In a national celebration of Thanksgiving, there would be a sacrifice of an animal that would then be shared in by all the people. Follow me on this. In a national celebration of deliverance, there would be a sacrifice that would be offered and that would be shared in by all the people. But Jesus fulfills that once and for all because he was bound with cords and with nails to the altar, the cross. And as he was bound and nailed to the cross. The cross became the once for all altar of sacrifice, where all of our sin was paid for once and for all. And we, who trust in him, now get to share in that sacrifice. That is what we are doing spiritually when we partake in the Lord's Supper. We are sharing spiritually by faith, in the body and blood of Christ, offered for us once for all. We don't repeat the sacrifice, it's once for all, it's done. But we get to share in what Christ has offered up freely for us. And so our conclusion to all of this, to the deliverance that we need, to the deliverer that we've trusted, and to the deliverance that has been provided, our response to all of this must be to give thanks to the Lord. So, we're going to go back to the Psalm 118 and we're going to read the opening and the closing again, but I want you to join me this time. In the opening of Psalm 118, there are three groups who speak. There's Israel, there's the house of Aaron, and there's those who fear the Lord. Now, within the temple, the house of Aaron would have been that group closest to the altar because they were the priests who served, right? So, this middle section here, you're going to be the house of Aaron, okay? And then Israel would have had nearer access, and so everybody, all together, including the house of Aaron, you're going to be the house of Israel. But then also at the temple would have been the God-fearers, those who were coming because they feared the Lord and they were wanting to know more about the Lord, and they would be the furthest away. So, those of you who are in the back section, you're going to be those who fear the Lord. Okay, everybody got their part? So when I say, let Israel say, that's going to be everybody in the front. And then let the house of Aaron say, just the middle section. And then let those who fear the Lord will be the back. And then I'll go to the end. And what I would like us to do at the end is for all of us together to read verse 29. Okay? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say... Let the house of Aaron say, Let those who fear the Lord say, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your steadfast love, unfailing, faithful, fulfilled in Christ, given for us. What a privilege and what a joy. We pray that you would feed us now with Christ for our souls, that we might be enriched and blessed to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.